I'll be reading Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 to 31. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. It is fine to have it's fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, not just when I am with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. Tell me who you want me, who you want to be under the law. Are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of a divine promise. These things have been taken figuratively. The woman represents two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai that bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother for it is written be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud. You who were never born, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than her who has a husband. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit it is the same now but what does scripture say get rid of the slave woman and her son for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son therefore brothers and sisters we are not children of the slave woman but of the free woman
Good morning, friends. It's great to see you. I want to start by telling you this morning uh, that I cannot stand poorly run meetings. It's a true story, and I have attended some poorly run meetings. Perhaps you have as well. Is there anything worse when the agenda is non-existent, when the purpose of the meeting is unclear, when the conversation goes round and round in circles, and at the end of the day, you give yourselves a pat on the back and promise to do it again? I was in a meeting like that once, and the only redeeming feature was that a lovely woman came in and placed chicken sandwiches on the table in the middle of the meeting. And I tell you, hallelujah for chicken on that occasion, and on every occasion, but hallelujah on that occasion. Uh, The other news is, of course, that I have run some poor meetings, uh, and I distinctly remember a co-worker of mine saying to me, can we just get to the heart of the matter? And I wanted to say to him, if I knew what the heart of the matter was, we'd get there, but... We didn't get there. Anyway, I would have loved to be able to do that. I just could not get the issue clear in my mind. Perhaps you've experienced moments just like that. Well, friends, we've got good news. Because as we work our way through Galatians, uh, we come to a point right now where Paul takes us to the heart of the matter. Here is things laid out clearly. Here is why Paul is writing this letter. Here is why Paul is so concerned about what's going on in Galatia. Here is the moment of clarity from chapter 4, verse 8, where Paul is going to take us to the heart of the matter, then to the heart of ministry, and then to the heart of faith. But first and foremost, we get to the heart of the matter in Galatia and Paul's desire for his beloved sons and daughters of the faith. So grab your Bible, have it open uh, on your phone or something else, uh, and we're going to start with verse 8. And this is where Paul begins. He says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not God. So here's Paul's little summary. Paul starts with the point that without God, we are all slaves. We're all held captive to something. And those in the region of Galatia, both Jew and Gentile, were held captive to the law, to worldly passions and desires. They were slaves to things that by nature were not God or gods or of any spiritual benefit to them whatsoever. They had no knowledge of the one who truly made the world. But then, the arrival of Paul, the arrival of the gospel... The preaching of the good news meant that all that changed. And we know this from the most glorious word in all of Paul's writings. That is at the very start of verse 9. I think this is the most glorious word that Paul ever writes. And it is the word, but. You see, every time Paul writes that word, just about in every one of his letters, he started with something negative, then he says, but. Ah. Here comes joy. Here comes glory. And almost every time it's, here comes Jesus. And here he summarizes it like this in verse 9. He says, but now that you know God. Paul offered them freedom from the God of the universe through faith in Christ. 
Paul preached Christ crucified, the news of a God who loved them and made them sons through the precious death of his son. And they believed and escaped slavery to sin and death and they were assured of life eternal through faith in Christ. Freedom was theirs. They'd moved from death to life. But again, what then happened? Well, the whole of verse 9, Paul says, But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You see, in Paul's mind, their move from idolatry and death to Jesus and now then to rituals and the following of rules is a journey from death to life and back to death, to slavery, to misery. Their whole venture with the law is simply a venture into slavery and misery. And I wonder if, as I say that, you might hear how offensive this language would have been to the Jewish ears who might have read Paul's letter. To have Paul critique their law in this way would have been radical in the extreme. But then to describe the law as a weak and miserable enslaving force, well, that's outrageous to Jewish ears. Indeed, Paul is saying that whatever leads one away, from sole reliance on Jesus, whether based on good desires or depraved desires, whatever leads you away from sole reliance on Jesus is sub-Christian and worthy of condemnation. And every human being who is not dedicated to Jesus is captive to a miserable slavery and can only be set free by Jesus. And so the well-meaning Jewish troublemakers... Well, they're as misguided and lost as any pagan Gentile. Now, in the face of this, a young person would say, oofed. Have you heard young people say oofed before? It just means, in our language, wow, that's outrageous. Somehow they condense things into way less words. Or they might say, awkward. And again, that's sort of what it means. Like, it's like, Wow. This is outrageous that Paul would say this. But this is Paul's point. You've moved from death to life and back to death. Why have you done that? The specifics of what they've done there is is there in verse 10. He says, you are observing special days and months and seasons and years. It's shorthand for the fact that they have taken the entire Jewish system of religious observance, the whole kit and caboodle, nothing is left hanging. They've taken it all on and found themselves slaves again. And so Paul finishes with this beautiful moment in verse 11 saying, I fear for you. He's afraid. He's scared. For them, they're back in death. They've heard the good news of Jesus and peace, but they're back in death. And he says, I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. Not that he's concerned about himself, but he's concerned that they've rejected the gospel. So what's the heart of the matter here in Galatians? It's just this. That the legalism advocated by the Galatian troublemakers and the gospel of freedom and grace that Paul proclaimed are irreconcilably opposed to each other. One brings life. One brings death. 
They cannot be harmonised. There can be no accommodation. You can't have little bits and pieces. There's no meeting in the middle. The message singing forth in the Galatian churches is slavery and law and death. The message that rang from the lips of Paul was grace and freedom and life. That's why Paul finishes this whole section, actually, in chapter 5, verse 1, saying, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Christ has not set you free to place you back in slavery. So here, friends, is the heart of the matter. Dedicating your life to anything but Jesus is dedicating your life to miserable slavery. And that's it. You've been created and designed and purposed to live life in Christ's freedom. And you can stick with slavery or you can find freedom and life in Jesus. The choice is yours. But Paul is here laying it on the line. The heart of the matter is this. Take Jesus or remain a slave to things that are not God. Now, I don't think he just means religious things. I don't think we sort of just fob this off and say, oh, well, I'm not, I'm not going to stop eating bacon. I'm not going to stop doing this or that or something else, as if this is not a problem for us. I think there are broader implications here that Paul would have in his mind. I think he means much more than just religious things. It's that we ought not find ourselves enslaved to anything but Christ, including things like ideologies, Ideologies of environmentalism or sexual neutrality or sexual identity or something else. We ought not to be encased in ideologies nor material ideologies or material things like houses and cars and possessions. They ought not be our preoccupation. Jesus ought to be our preoccupation. Similarly, any other belief system or anything that might take hold of you and drive you, all those things may feel very much like freedom and even offer you a little bit of joy and hope and enjoyment and, and pleasure, but they will get into you and grasp you and destroy you. For it's for freedom that Christ set you free. To trust him and to follow him. And you cannot have freedom nor life unless you just trust Christ. Now, in case you think that the obeying the law thing is definitely not something that normal people would fall into, let me share you, with you a little story about a treasured friend of mine who is dedicated to the things of Jesus. In fact, she's the sort of person who would have come to all four Share Life Go events this week because she was so passionate about seeing people know the Lord Jesus Christ. She would have four books and she would have four sets of people she's praying for. She'd have four things going on at the same time. She has nine days a week. It was amazing. She was regular at anything to do with church and she was prayerful and asking for ways to pray for us. She was regular in the things of the gospel, as regular as a metronome. But then, one day, she started becoming obsessed with the things of the Sabbath. And one day she became so obsessed with the things of the Sabbath that she came to believe that really the only day that Christians ought to meet on, the only day truly worthy of the Lord was a Saturday. And to do church and Christian things on any other day but a Saturday was not authentically Christian. So she separated herself from our church. She separated herself from other Christian people. She separated herself from anyone who didn't say the right day is Saturday. And she would not have fellowship with anyone 
And there was this beautiful, rational, sensible Christian woman who now trusts in seasons and days and months and years and not in the freedom of Christ. Bound to law, not bound to Christ. Friends, be warned of the sneakiness of slavery. It offers you power and control and a form of freedom. But Jesus offers true freedom. Those things that we may become enslaved to are powers that will kill you eternally. And that's the heart of the matter for Paul. And he fears for them. And so here's the second thing that we see here, and it is at the heart of ministry, the heart of those who minister to the flock. Listen again to Paul's words from verse 12. He says, I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. Get back to the gospel. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. In verse 19, my dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone I am perplexed about you. Here is the heart of a passionate minister of the gospel on display. He has loved them and sacrificed much for them. He's laid out his life for them that they might know Christ. He has shed tears and sweat for them. And again, he says, here he is in the pains of childbirth. Now, I don't know much about that, but I have seen it four times, and it looks pretty painful to me. What's he saying here? He's saying that that ministry is intense work. It's absolutely, fully absorbing and intense to be a pastor or a minister is to give your whole heart completely into Jesus in service of others that they might follow him. And this is no small work or insignificant work. It is intense and important and both deeply joyful and sometimes deeply tragic. Paul experienced a deep relationship of care and passion for the Galatians. He talks here not only about his theology, but through the book, his feelings for them, his hopes for them his disappointments over them, his frustrations in them. He rebukes them and calls them to courage. He loves them, but he's also keen to protect them from those who don't know the truth. And indeed, if we had time, we'd dig into all of verse 21 through to 31 in the back end of our reading today, and we'd see really that that whole section is one enormous backhanded rebuke of the troublemakers, where Paul aligns them as the persecuting enemies of God. Here they are claiming to be the ones with the truth, but Paul says, no, you guys are the persecuting enemies of God by calling them the children of Hagar. Now, I hope you have time to dig into that in your growth groups during this week, but for now, I want you to see this. It is that those who are set 
over others in the church who are set to work with the spiritual lives of others take on no small task. It's a task of the heart. As you wrestle in prayer, as you unpack and teach the scriptures, as you pass to the lost and the faint-hearted and the downtrodden and the struggling. And there are disappointments and frustrations and oh, there are joys and pleasures. Like last week. How good was that? It was amazing. A day of celebrating people who were saying, I turn to Christ. Nothing better. And even just saying that right now, my whole body is covered in goosebumps. Amazing. There is the desire to protect the flock, to stretch the flock, to build resilience in the flock, to all the time while pointing the flock away from ourselves and to Jesus. It's a great and marvellous work and a wonderfully high calling, but simple, it's not. And you see that right here in Paul, don't you? Simple, it's not. And if you were to lift the lid on Christchurch and Ives, you'd see the same thing. Now, friends, I don't make this point in order to receive your praise or adulation, your consolation or your lament. The staff don't need a card of consolation. Please don't go and spend money on Hallmark. Don't, you know, don't feel like there's some massive issue going on. We have an exceptional team of men and women who work together week by week uh, to make our church what it is, and each one loves Jesus more than they love you. Just take that in for a moment. Each one loves Jesus more than they love you. But they also want you to love Jesus more than you love us. Because Jesus is in charge. As we all love Jesus first, then we all can pursue greater passion and understanding and godliness and maturity than we had the day before. And each one on our team is a joy for me to work with. But each one of us is involved with people in a spiritual work that is often overwhelmingly complex. And in those moments, the only thing we can do is pray. And that's what I want to urge you to do for us. I want to urge you to pray. Pray for all the people set over you in the Lord. Pray for our staff team. Pray for your growth group leaders. Pray for your children's growth group leaders. Pray especially for the creche leaders. Pray for all those set over you in the Lord that they may continue in the task of teaching the good news of Christ. And you can be sure that we love the Lord Jesus and we love you and we want you to love the Lord Jesus way more than you love us, but we do eagerly desire your prayers. And of this you can be sure that we will on every day possible and at every moment possible place the word of God before you and the world because we truly believe that it is that word that is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so the people of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Indeed, we want you to have a consistent heart of faith, the very same thing Paul wanted for the Galatians. And so finally, the heart of faith. This is what Paul wants for them. This is what we want for you. Verse 17. Are those people as zealous to win you over? 
but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. It's fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good. And to be so always, not just when I'm with you. Friends, it's a great reminder that zeal is no indicator of truth. You'll meet some zealous people out there and they'll be zealous for nonsense. In fact, sometimes the most zealous people are the people who are carrying the most nonsense. So be cautious. Zeal and truth don't go together like hand and glove. But, but likewise, Paul is saying here, isn't he, verse 18, uh, the gospel is not something you can have part-time. Being a Christian is not something you can do part-time. The heart of faith doesn't only beat on a Sunday and a Tuesday night. The heart of faith is consistent. And it seems that among the Galatians, they run a bit hot and cold. When the coach is on the field, they're working hard. When the coach is off the field, they're playing with the grass. When the teacher is in the classroom, they're doing their work. When the teacher is out of the classroom, they're throwing chairs. And Paul says, may it not be. At the heart of faith is to always consistently, continually and ongoingly trust in and rely upon Jesus. To live for Jesus, to walk with Jesus, to speak for Jesus, to honour Jesus and not just when other people are watching because verse 8, and you'll notice that I have mentioned this little beautiful phrase in verse 8 that being a Christian is more than just knowing God, it's actually being known by God. Now, that, that's not there as if he's the teacher going, I'm watching you, I see what you do. No, it's, it's there to remind us of that deep relational relationship that God has with us. It's a deep expression of God's love for you, that he knows your heart, he knows your steps, and he's with you in every moment, giving you strength and courage to persevere. He's not the coach and he's not the teacher. He is the ever-present loving father who wants more for you than you even want for yourself. So friends, the heart of a lived faith is lived full-time, full-on, full-ball for Jesus. Not doing this and that, but just following Jesus. You cannot be a Sunday, Tuesday, Wednesday Christian. Just imagine that you had a friend who said to you, hey, I'm really keen to catch up with you on a Monday lunchtime, but definitely not on a Tuesday lunchtime, because on a Monday lunchtime, I will love you and even buy you lunch, but on a Tuesday lunchtime, I'm going to talk about you with these other people, and we're going to have lunch over here, and you are not welcome, but on a Thursday, let's catch up again and have a palmy. That'd be great, but on a Friday, I'm going to talk about all of you with someone else. How's that going to go? My suspicion is badly. So friends, don't do that to Jesus and don't do that to each other. Don't dabble in other things. Don't dabble in legalism. Don't dabble in ideologies. Don't dabble in this and that. You just stick with Jesus. Don't dress up in your Christian self for church and growth group and then dress up in your worldly self for work and then dress up in your base and impassioned self for nights out and then dress up in your materialist self for time at the shops on a Saturday and then search the floor on a Sunday morning for your Christian best again 
and start the cycle over, as if being Christian was something you can dip in and out of like an extended online conference, and I know you do that. Don't be a chameleon, one of multiple different colours, multiple different interests, multiple different ideologies, multiple different thoughts, taking a bit of this and a bit of that. Jesus wants you all of the time, with him, with zeal, for truth. He doesn't want you to consider other options. He doesn't want you to share him with other gods or things that by nature are not God. He wants your heart and soul and mind and strength to be engaged with him forever. And to do anything else is a return to the very slavery that he's saved you from. And this is the heart of the matter for the Galatians. And this is the heart of the matter for you. It's for freedom in Christ that you have been set free. He's drawn you near as a son. He sees you through the lens of Jesus. And yet we keep jumping out of the frame in the bizarre hope that there might be something better or that perhaps God might be not giving us what is best or that there is something else. As if we might know what's best. As if we might know what good desires are. As if we might know what a good life looks like. As if God might have something better he's keeping away from us. What, what absolute foolishness. Friends, if you failed to see in Christ something worth clinging to at all cost... Come back to the cross. If you have failed to see in Christ something worth hoping in, despite how things play out, come back to the cross. If you have failed to see in Christ something worth investing in, despite the earthly returns, come back to the cross. If you have failed to see in Christ something worth rejoicing in despite suffering, come back to the cross. And I urge you, as Paul urges the Galatians in verse 11, I urge you with all my heart, come again and again to the cross and see that God loves you more than you will ever know and that God knows you more than you will ever understand indeed more than you understand and know yourself. And that in Christ he has given you best freedom and life. And despite the fact that he does know you, he even knows those things about you that you don't speak. Despite the fact that he knows you fully through Christ, you're welcome at his table. Come, gather with Friends, if we follow Christ, we cling to his word, we let everything else go. That is enough. Friends, to have Christ is enough. Amen.